Okay, this morning I want to talk to you about the Bible. Um, almost goes without saying that it's the, the basis of everything that we believe. Uh, before we do that, let's, um, let's bow our hearts and just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, we pray that in this next uh, short while as we just consider your word, that, Lord, you would speak to us clearly. The Father, if we need encouragement, that you would encourage us. If we need to be convicted, that you would convict us. But, Lord, whatever happens, by your grace, that we would grow. Lord, in that grace and in knowledge. Father, give us a greater understanding of you and the incredible love that you have for us. And so, Lord, we just commit this time of study to you now. And Lord, we do invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher here in our midst now. May we have open ears and open hearts ready to receive. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. George Washington said that it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Patrick Henry, the well-known Bible commentator, said, the Bible is worth all the other books which have ever been printed. Napoleon himself said, the Bible is no mere book, but is a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. These are just different people's views of the Bible. The Bible itself says of itself, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible is alive and full of energy. And those that read it become energized by that which we read. In Isaiah 40, we're told in verse 8 that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. In Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus said, The heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And in Psalm 119, verse 89, we read there, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It just struck me that that's the ultimate in cloud-based storage. Some of you may understand that concept. Everything is being moved from having computers in your home or in your business and everything's being stored online. Well, ultimately, the Word of God isn't just stored in one book or on some hard drive somewhere. It's settled in heaven. You know, everything material will be burnt up. Everything in this physical world will eventually be destroyed. But the Word of God goes on forever. In Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, David said this. He said, The words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. A promise that God would preserve his word. And when you turn to the New Testament in the book of Romans, you find how God intended to do that. Paul has been talking about the fact that we are all confined under sin, that we're all, um, that we judge ourselves by our own attitudes and so on and so forth. But he says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And one of the things that Paul tells us is a benefit or an advantage that the Jew has is that 
much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God entrusted his word to the Jews. And we are beneficiaries of that which they did. Some of you may have looked at some of these things before, but when the Jews were, were copying a scroll, they had a number of criteria. The Talmud actually lists more than a, a dozen rules for copying the Torah. We feel like it's this built-in security system, so that it wouldn't get corrupted. Even if just one of these factors was lacking, it doesn't possess the sanctity of a Torah scroll, Torah being the first five books specifically. But this was again applied for the rest of the, the Tanakh, of the Jewish Old Testament, that which we have today as the Old Testament. And if such a thing were to occur, that one of the factors that we'll just look at in a moment was missing, that scroll couldn't be used for public reading at all. In fact, it would be discarded. The meticulous process of hand-copying a scroll takes about 2,000 hours. That's an awful long time and a lot of dedication, particularly when you realize how exacting the requirements were. And throughout the centuries, Jewish scribes have adhered to the following guidelines. Firstly, the parchment that they would be using, or obviously changed to, uh, to, to um, paper as we've gone on in history. But to start with, the parchment must be made from the skin of a clean animal. That's ceremonially clean, uh, according to the laws in Leviticus. And must be prepared by a Jew only. And the skins must be fastened together by strings taken from ceremonially clean animals. Each column, as they were writing out, would have no more than 48 and no, uh, sorry, no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The entire copy um, must be first lines. They were to keep it so it's nice and neat on the page. I know you, sometimes when I write, it starts somewhere and it ends up completely a different trajectory. A Torah scroll is disqualified if even a single letter is added. Now you think, you've just done... 1,999 hours, and you're on the last page. A Torah scroll is disqualified even if even a single letter is deleted. The scribe must be a learned, pious Jew who has undergone special training and certification. All the materials, the parchment, the ink, the quill, etc., had to conform to strict specifications and had to be prepared specifically for the purpose of doing this task, of writing the scroll. The scribe may not write even one letter into the Torah scroll by heart. Rather, he must have a second kosher scroll open before him at all times. He must just do it from memory in case he gets it wrong. The scribe must pronounce every word out loud before copying it from the correct text. Every letter must have sufficient white space surrounding it. If one letter touched another in any spot, it invalidates the entire scroll. Again, if you've just spent... But most of your year doing this, how careful are you going to be on that last page? If a single letter was to be uh, so marred that it cannot be read at all or resembles another letter, whether the defect was in the writing or due to a hole, tear or smudge, it invalidates the entire scroll. Each letter must be sufficiently legible so that even an ordinary schoolchild could distinguish it from other similar letters. The scribe must... Put precise space between the words so that one word will not look like two words or two words look like one word. The scribe must not alter the design of the sections and must conform to the particular line lengths and paragraph configurations. The ink must be of no other colour than black and must be prepared according to a special recipe. He must reverently wipe his pen each time before writing 
the word for God, Elohim, in the Hebrew. And he must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah. That's Lord as it's translated in the King James. Unless the name be contaminated. I mean, you've got a passage that talks an awful lot about Jehovah. That's an awful lot of washing. Each Hebrew letter has a numerical value, and each column when completed must add up and be the exact numerical value as the scroll that you're copying from. Each page must also add up numerically. And the, the revision, this is to correct any er- errors of a roll, must be made within 30 days after the work was finished, otherwise it was worthless. And one mistake on a sheet condemned the entire sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. That's how strict they were in regarding the copying of the law. And again, that carried on to the rest of the Old Testament as we have it. So the question about, do we have the right version today? Has it been tampered with over time? Well, God promised to preserve his word. And the the critic's favorite challenge is, oh, you can't trust the Bible, it's been changed. How many times do we hear that from people? I've heard people at work tell me that, oh, but the Bible's been changed so many times. Well, they clearly don't know what they're talking about. There's 304,805 letters in the Torah. I must confess, I didn't actually count that myself. I got that from a, from a commentary. How many errors do you think may have crept in in 1900 years? Over the last 2,000 years or so. How many letters do you think may have, you know, got changed? Well... Fact is that after all the trials and tribulations, communal dislocations and persecutions, this is of the Jewish people, only the Yemenite Torah scrolls contain any difference from the rest of the world Jewry. For hundreds of years, the Yemenite community was not part of the global checking system, and a total of nine letter differences are found in their scrolls. These are all spelling differences, and in no case do they change the meaning of the word. Doesn't that give you some kind of confidence that what you read is true? Paul, however, in 2 Corinthians, gives us a warning. He says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, um, but sorry, yeah, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Paul warns us that there are people out there that would like to corrupt the word of God. In Peter, 2 Peter 3.16, we read Peter saying, as in all his epistles, this is speaking of Paul, speaking in them of things which, some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they also do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Peter refers here to people that would like to twist Paul's words. They would like to change what Paul has said. And they do it ultimately to their own destruction. Of course, we know well that scripture from Jude, where Jude says, Behold, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. That's what he wanted to do, but he says, It was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And he says, For there are certain men crept in unawares. This isn't something that's so obvious that everybody saw it coming. The whole basis of deception is that it's subtle. You don't get a forged nine-pound note. People only will forge that which is so close to the original, it's very hard to distinguish. For there are certain men crept in unawares who are before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what these people will do. They will deny Jesus. Goes back all the really all the way really to Genesis chapter three. Verse one we read now that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Notice the challenge. Has God said? The challenge was to doubt God's word. To question whether what God had said was really what God had said, or did he mean something else, or maybe we misheard or didn't understand properly. It's interesting in First John chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, John there says, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Paul, oh, sorry, John making the point here that he's writing to them because they know the truth. And he says, who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Why was John writing this? Well, because if we look at history, we look at the time that the Bible was actually written. Obviously the Bible covers from the creation all the way through to eternity but this is the period really from the the time of the exodus when they get to sinai and moses starts to pen uh, the the pages of scripture the torah and everything else this is the period of time when in which the bible was written and we get to the, the time here the end of the new testament 97 ad as the book of revelation is finished and um the consensus is that after john has spent his time on patmos he goes back and goes back to ephesus and which is where these letters that we just looked at there briefly were written, uh, first, second, third John, and so on. And by the time we get to the end of the first century, there was already a heresy creeping in to the church. If we kind of focus on that little time frame, this heresy was was coming in, and it was coming from the the hotbed of heresy, which was Alexandra in Egypt. Now, Alexandria had become, for the last 300 years prior to this, a very famous place for learning. There was an incredible library there and so on. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. And what was happening is that Greek philosophy, which was kind of the thinking of that time, and Christianity were kind of being fused together. And these clever people were trying to find ways that we could embrace Christianity and yet work it in with our culture. Make it acceptable. And so that these ideas were being merged together. The result... We end up with questions over the deity of Christ. And as John writes his letter, he was well aware that these things were starting to happen. Now, it carried on for some time after that, but John writes that we need to be very careful. We know the truth, and we need to be careful because there are people that will come denying that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Christ. If we look at the history of the Bible, as it were, in a timeline, we have the Old Testament, obviously, we know that's existing as it is, as it were, in the time of Christ. Um, the uh, New Testament books then are concluded around about 96, 97 AD, as we get to the end of Revelation, and John writes um, those last uh, epistles that he writes, which kind of closes out the New Testament era. And we find that careful copies were made and spread around the world from that time. But we also find that in Alexandria, in Egypt, there was this cult that was arising that were making their own versions of the Bible to suit themselves, to suit their own ideas, their own thinking. And there's various people that got involved in that practice. Um, 
there was a, a man called Arius. You may have heard that name in church history. Uh, he had various views and ideas, and that's a little bit later on. And also a man called Oregon, another character that came on that's tried to start uh, allegorizing Scripture. Well, it doesn't really mean this, it means something other than that. Well, the problem is the moment you say that, it's subjective, it's open to interpretation. The moment we say the Bible doesn't really mean that, it means something else, well, then it's down to you or someone else to make that decision. You know, the moment you move away from the Word of God being the Word of God, and you start to move into that realm of, well, I think it means this, well, then everybody can have their own opinion. <coughs> a lot of this was addressed at the Council of Nicaea in uh, AD 325. This problem had got so out of hand to a point, and it was threatening to divide the church, that this council meets and they condemn the Arian heresy, as they then understood it to be, that Jesus really, truly is God manifest in the flesh. And there were various other things that were settled at that time. But from that point, the, the line was drawn in the sand, if you like. But nevertheless, we still had those texts that had been copied and adopted and changed from Alexandra. Around about uh, 400, actually I think it's about 380 AD, um, a chap by the name of Jerome, you may have heard of him, uh, he decided to translate from the manuscripts that he had a version into Latin, which became known as the Vulgate, simply just means the common or popular. Um, it was the popular tongue of the day, uh, Latin. And so he's translating a version into Latin. But the text that he used came from the Alexandrian manuscripts. So was it a good translation or a bad translation? Well, in a sense, it's irrelevant because that which he was translating was bad. He started with the wrong source and ends up with a, a version that then got embraced by the Catholic Church and became their Bible, and effectively still is, uh, the essence of their Bible to this day. Many issues, many problems. We'll talk about that in a short while. We'll jump forward a little bit in time. We get to around about 1380 AD, and a man called John Wycliffe, he hand-writes a copy of the Bible, translating it into English. He uses the texts that have been passed down through the church through the ages. And this is the first translation of the Bible in English, but it's a handwritten copy. And you can imagine how long it would take, not just to copy scripture out, but obviously to do it by hand while you're translating it as well. Let's just uh, focus for a while, if you can, on that period of history, because it's one of the most important periods of history in regard to so many aspects of where we are today. <laughs> A man called uh, Johann Gutenberg, in around about 1440, produced the first printing press. This was revolutionary. Up until this point, everything was hand-produced, written by hand. And you can imagine how expensive, therefore, books would be if you had to write out everything by hand. To then sell on that book, you've got to recover your cost and your time and everything else. So books were very much the uh, domain of the elite, those that had the money, the wealthy, and so on. It wasn't something that was available to everybody. But in... 1452, he said about printing the first ever printed Bible. There's a copy of this up in the British Museum. Um, sorry, the uh, British Library up in London. So this is the first Bible. And again, he prints this Latin Bible uh, from the Vulgate. Around about the same time, 1466, there's another chap by the name of Erasmus of Rotterdam in Holland. And he produces a Greek version of the Bible by compiling, compiling all the available manuscripts he can find. And there were many of them, but he started compiling them all. And once he'd got them all together, he decided he was going to start to translate. 
Now, he had different reasons for doing what he was doing, but he started translating these. His intention, ultimately, was to produce a new Latin version. But as he did this, he started realizing that the Vulgate, which was the popular Bible of the day still, had serious errors in it, where things had been mistranslated, or in some cases translated correctly, but because they'd come from that group of manuscripts from Alexandra, that which was being translated was obviously in error. And Erasmus was comparing these texts and realizing the problem, and what he actually then produced was a parallel translation with the Greek and the Latin, partly to show how accurate his translation was, but also to show that that which had been popularly accepted when you refer back to the Greek manuscripts was problematic. His, uh, one of the famous quotes Erasmus said was, it's only fair that Paul should address the Romans in somewhat better Latin. In other words, he wanted to tra- create a Latin version and for the Roman Catholic Church and so on that were um, speaking particularly to the Roman, to Italy, saying that we should have something that is better than we've currently got. Again, around about the same time, somebody called Martin Luther, who we're all very familiar with, born in 1483, He sets off on his career path and then, due to a a situation with a very stormy day and a bit of lightning and so on, he pleads to God that God would save him and so on. And the the result is that he promises God that he would go into service for God, into a monastery. And that's exactly what he then does, much to the um, displeasure of his family. But as he studies and grows and starts reading scripture, he gets to that verse that talks about the just living by faith in Romans 1.17. And he starts to think about the whole situation to do with salvation. At that time, we have um, the Roman Catholic Church selling indulgences. You've probably heard this before. They would simply print out something and you would get it signed for you and it would just absolve you of your sin if you paid the right amount. Or you can actually pay to have somebody who is already dead and gone to purgatory. Uh, you could get them out of purgatory if you paid enough and got their sins forgiven and so on. Again, that whole idea of purgatory comes from the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. Luther was really concerned about all of this, and as he did more and more study, he ends up writing his 95 Theses, which gets nailed onto the door of the um, church in Wittenberg. Um, This causes real shockwaves through the church of that time. You know, somebody was daring to question the established church, which was obviously the Roman Catholic Church of the day. Now, round about the same time again, another chap by the name of William Tyndale, born in 1494. His great passion was to translate the Bible into English. Now, Luther had said about a translation of the Bible into German, and Tyndale thought, well, we need to have the same for the people of England. And this was his great passion through his life. But because of the political pressure that was going on in England, England still at that time was largely a Catholic uh, country, still under the, the um, a, lot, a lot of pressure from Rome. And there was a lot of people within the church, within this country, that were very against him doing this. Well, because of that pressure, he ends up fleeing from England. And there is a, a thought by some scholars that he actually met up with Martin Luther in Wittenberg. Um, certainly some of... Uh, Tyndale's translation uh, is very similar to the translation that um, Martin Luther had done. So there's a suggestion that they had some element of collaboration here. But nevertheless, whether they did or didn't meet, he still uh, did this work. 
And he finally finished his New Testament in July of 1525. I just want to just pause and just step back here. We're talking here about the Bible that we can pick up and read. And again, I just want to underline here the lengths that people went to to ensure that we have a copy of the Scriptures, that we take for granted. And in the morning, we look at it on the shelf and think, oh, I'll do it tonight. Or we get home and you think, it's been a long day, I'm going to sit and watch telly. But think what these people went through for us, and ultimately, obviously, for the Lord. Tyndale was a, a bit of a revolutionary in many respects. But one of the things he did in his translation of Scripture, he added new words into the English language, such as Jehovah. Word didn't exist until Tyndale coined it. The word Passover was added by Tyndale. The word atonement didn't exist in our language until Tyndale, as part of his translation, put it in there. He, he tried to find a word that accurately conveyed the meaning of the original text. And Tyndale's text quickly gained momentum, this New Testament that he translated. Alistair McGrath, in his book, um, talking about how our Bibles come down to us, says, once Tyndale's translation of the New Testament were widely available, there was no turning back. Tyndale's translation would have to be authorised, or it would have to be bettered. There seemed to be no alternative. Reluctant to adopt the former course, Henry, that's King Henry VIII, we'll talk about in a moment, Henry's advisers chose the latter. They would produce their own Bible and require it to be used in the public worship of the churches. Now, you need to understand at this point that we have a church establishment that's largely Catholic that had not allowed the congregation to have copies of the Bible, partly because of the the logistics of it, but also because, of course, if the congregation read the Bible, goodness knows what would happen. Now, the political landscape in England, which is important to understand at this point, Henry VIII becomes king when he's just 17 years old. His elder brother, who'd been married um, to uh, a certain Catherine of Aragon, died. So Henry then, to, because of his father's trying to arrange all this to keep uh, this alliance with Spain going, Henry then is married uh, to Catherine of Aragon. They're both very young at this point. She was the daughter of the King of Spain, Ferdinand II. Now, because Henry had no male heir at this point, he decided it was partly because he'd married his brother's sister and taking a verse from Leviticus that said that you would be childless if that were to happen, he concluded, therefore, because I've married my brother's sister, even though his brother was dead, that's why they're having no children. So he thought, well, I'll ask the Pope, the Pope will grant me a divorce and then I can just marry somebody else, have a male heir and then no problems. Now, ordinarily, that probably would have been okay and the Pope would have granted the request. But there was an issue, and that was that Rome, at the time, was under virtual siege by Spanish, another Spanish king, this time Charles V. Charles V was the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. So the Pope looks at this situation. His own situation is in turmoil, as the Spanish army is uh, very much running the show at that point. And he thinks, if he grants Henry this request, well, what's... Charles, the nephew of this particular lady Henry wants to divorce, going to do about this? So he decides to say to Henry, sorry, no, not granting your request. Doesn't make Henry very happy. You can imagine. (coughs) So Henry decides that he's going to establish himself as the head of the Catholic English Church. Henry's intention was not to get caught up in this Reformation business, but just to set himself up as the head of the church in this country, which was a Catholic church. Now, because there was a lot of support for the Pope in this country, particularly within the monasteries, 
Well, Henry has a bit of an issue there, and he knows that there's a number of people that would potentially be problematic to his cause, so he sets about closing the English monasteries. As a result of that, he sells off the land. That works quite well because it brings a lot of money into the royal coffers. He also seeks alliance with the German Lutherans. Now, these are the people that had uh, been uh, very influenced by Martin Luther and the Reformation, Henry had no particular religious bias here, but he just thought it'd be nice to have some allies supporting here. And already um, the, um, the Lutherans and so on were uh, loggerheads with the Church of Rome. Kind of very much the, uh, my enemy's enemy is my friend type of situation. Rather than the Lutherans being anything particularly special to Henry, it was purely that they had the same common enemy so that they could work together, in theory. Now, as a result of this, we find that Lutheran doctrine, this Reformation doctrine, starts to sweep this country. Very much propagated and helped on its way by two Thomases. There's a Thomas Cromwell and a Thomas Cramer. Thomas Cramer became the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, uh, was appointed to that role. Thomas Cromwell was, if you like, the chief advisor to Henry VIII. And it's interesting, you read through a lot of history, and Thomas Cromwell doesn't often get a lot of mention, but he's hugely significant in us having the Bible today. Um, if the name seems familiar, that name Cromwell, uh, well, Oliver Cromwell was the great-great-grandson of Thomas's Cromwell's sister. So they are related, all part of the same family. Um, but uh, this was before Oliver Cromwell and so on. <coughs> now, Thomas Cromwell was eventually executed um, for pushing the Reformation agenda a little bit too hard with uh, King Henry VIII. What he'd actually done, he'd encouraged the king, King Henry, to marry Anne of Cleves. Uh, now, Anne of Cleves was a Lutheran, and uh, from that particular um, family group. Alice McGrath comments, he says, Cromwell had arranged for Hans Holborn to paint an excessively flattering portrait of this Lutheran princess, whom Henry never met prior to the marriage. Now, it's a little bit like these people that try and use these kind of you know, dating pages and they see, see this attractive person and they think, oh, they're rather nice. And then you meet them in the flesh and you realise, actually, they're not quite what they were in the picture. This is that kind of situation. This is, you know, um, internet dating before we had the internet. And Henry finds this, this, this woman uh, to be less pleasing than he'd intended. And he becomes rather um, disappointed with Thomas Cromwell. As a result of this, Cromwell is eventually executed. <coughs> Um, another scholar made this comment. He said, in January 1538, Cromwell pursued an extensive campaign against what was termed idolatry by the followers of the new religion. Uh, statues, uh, roofs, and images were attacked, culminating uh, in September with the dismantling of the shrine of St. Thomas of Becket at Canterbury. Early in September, Cromwell also completed a new set of uh, vice um, whatever that is, injunctions declaring open war on pilgrimages, feigned relics or images or any such superstitions and commanding that one book of the whole Bible of the largest volume in English be set up in every church. So this is before we get to the point that Cromwell is executed by the king. He sets about this work of reform in the country. And you've got to think here that this is somebody that would fit very well in where we sit and where we understand and our, our, our particular beliefs and doctrines. He was trying to stop all this nonsense that was going on, this worshipping of relics and these pilgrimages to these supposed shrines around the Europe at that time. And he was trying to set up that it would be the case that every church would have a copy of the Bible that people could learn from and grow from. 
Now, also, Thomas Cromwell was a very outspoken supporter of William Tyndale. Now, Tyndale had fled to Holland. He'd been betrayed while he was there. And as a result, he'd ended up being strangled and burned. Now, Parliament had petitioned to have him uh, released, set free. Uh, Cromwell was very much behind that petitioning. Uh, Unfortunately, it fell on deaf ears. Um, It almost was as if somebody was hell-bent on stopping the Bible being translated into English. It was a real struggle. And I can't emphasize enough how hard it was for these people at this time. Nevertheless... The English clergy realised that they needed an English translation, that the the weight and the momentum was gaining so quickly. But they rejected Tyndale's work. Now, one of the reasons for that was because there were marginal notes, in other words, comments that he'd made about the text, trying to very much like a commentary today, explaining what the certain portions of the scripture uh, were referring to and meaning. Now, some of those were very uh, anti-Catholic, as Tyndale's translating this, So the church is very opposed to suddenly producing this. So they reject Tyndale's work, but they know they need to do something. So Cromwell seizes this opportunity, and in 1534, uh, Henry's petitioned for an English translation of the Bible. Now, at that particular time, there is no royal sanction forthcoming, but neither was there uh, an abjuration. So in other words, he didn't say, no, you can't do it, but he didn't actually give an official yes either. So work begins. And the first one we have translated in 1535 is the Coverdale Bible. Now, this was the first printed entire Bible to appear in English. And Coverdale basically didn't actually do all the work of translation himself. He compiled numerous other works. So he took Tyndale's work and other Latin versions and so on to compile to make this translation. And Coverdale's Bible was favoured by Anne Boleyn. Okay, so this is Henry's second wife. Um, So because of that, Henry thought, that's okay, keeps the wife happy, so he allowed it. But then, obviously, Anne Boleyn falls out of favour. I'm sure you know your history there. And um, kind of she lost her head over something. Um, And Cromwell knew that then we had to find an alternative because Henry now is not so keen on the Coverdale Bible. That was the Bible his ex-wife used to like. So we've got to find another solution. And Cromwell, being very wise and astute, realises we've got to try and find another way around this. That leads to the Matthews Bible. Now, it was actually an English printer had already been in work on this, uh, working in Antwerp, and they were already trying to produce this version. So in 1537, we have the Matthews Bible. Now, it was the work of a man named John Rogers. The reason it's termed the Matthews Bible is because he didn't want to put his name on the cover. Now, possibly being aware of things that had happened and were happening at this time to Tyndale and others, uh, he decided he'd prefer to remain largely anonymous. Now, this particular translation was based on Coverdale's work again, so drawing from this uh, school that was already uh, at work here, and he also drew very heavily from Tyndale's work. And uh, included also unpublished work of Tyndale. Tyndale had only done the New Testament uh, in terms of printed form, but Coverdale um, then, sorry, um, uh, John, uh, sorry, what was his name? Um, John Rogers uses some of the Old Testament work that Tyndale had done, but had never actually been published. Henry liked it, so this is a good thing. And it's finally given the royal seal of approval, and it's authorised for general sale. Now, at this point, we find that the books are are coming down in price because of the printing press, because of the way they're being produced, and becoming more accessible to people. So this is now uh, royally approved. However, if we carry on... 
John Rogers, of Matthew's Bible, had included a large number of marginal notes. Now, at the time, they thought this would be really good. It would help people understand Scripture. Okay, so in other words, it's just a commentary that was included. Uh, but this was very heavily drawn from a French Protestant version, so a French version of the Bible, that had been produced in Geneva, in Switzerland. Now, the English clergy soon saw the danger of that, because although the Church of England at this time has now been established, this breakaway from Rome, there were still very many Catholic uh, undertones permeating the Church of England. For example, the clergy would wear their particular robes. The Protestants at the time were saying, why are you wearing your dresses? And they didn't have an answer. And of course, if the Bible with these notes in was going out to the populace, these questions would be asked. So, <coughs> so much of the Catholic tradition had been retained. And Matthew's Bible was caused lay people to see discrepancies between the scripture and the church. So, although the king had authorised this, the church realised we've got a problem. That leads on to the Great Bible. Again, Alistair McGrath comments, he says, Thomas Cromwell realised that a new translation was needed. To begin from scratch would have taken an enormous amount of time. The simplest solution was adopted. And Cromwell asked Coverdale to revise the Matthews Bible with such changes as were required to keep, it, to keep influential churchmen happy. So the new translation, which contained no offensive marginal notes, appeared in April 1539. And it was this Bible that became known as the Great Bible. So you think, we're there, we've got there. Well, not quite. In 1560, a new English translation was produced in Geneva in Switzerland. Now again, if you know anything of your history, you know that Geneva was a very important place during the time of the Reformation. Now this particular work was the work of a chap called William Whittingham uh, and others alongside him, including, it's believed, John Knox, you may be familiar with, and Miles Coverdale and others. So this was a, a joint effort producing this version, complete with extensive notes. And it took the Protestant world by storm at the time. As I say, many notes were part of this. And Geneva had really become um, the home of the Reformation and home of John Calvin, um, who we get the doctrines of Calvinism and so on. But John Calvin was very much spearheading what was going on uh, in terms of the, the Reformation at that time. And so this version of the Bible is gaining immense popularity. John Knox, you may be familiar, um, Scottish gentleman, obviously returns to Scotland with this version of the Bible and everybody's getting excited about this. Also in Geneva, a large number of English exiles had left this country because of the tension still between the Protestant and the Catholics and so on, and they'd left to go to Geneva wanting to live this uh, Protestant way of life. Now, as we move up to 1611, which is a milestone date in history, we find that Henry VIII has now died. His son Edward reigned for just six years. His eldest daughter Mary I reigns for just five, and that then leaves Elizabeth I to become the Queen of England. And she reigns for 45 years. Now, during her reign, she tries to appease both Protestants and the Catholics in her realm. She tries to get this middle ground. Although herself being Protestant, um, she's kind of very uh, uh, careful as to how she goes about dealing with people. Now, this upsets and offends the Puritans. Now, the Puritans are this group of people that are wanting to stick to the basis of Scripture. They don't want to have anything to do with the Catholic Church, and gradually this movement is gaining momentum in this country. 
Now, when Elizabeth died, because she had no heir, James the uh, sixth of Scotland becomes James the first of England. So the Scottish king, and there's a, a family tree, the, the line runs down through them, he becomes James I of England after Elizabeth. Now, Scotland, I just mentioned, was where John Knox had been teaching and preaching, and the church in Scotland was on fire with the Reformation, and the Geneva Bible, and so on. And, of course, in this country, the, um, those that wanted to uh, move away, the Puritans that wanted to move away from Catholic doctrine, were very excited that this Scottish king who's been caught up in all of this in Scotland is coming to England. They see it as their great opportunity to finally make the Geneva Bible the Bible that we can use in this country and we can move away from this uh, Catholicism. <coughs> okay, and obviously they're hoping that uh, the, 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 this new king is going to authorize the Geneva Bible. Now, this leads to a petition that these Puritans put together, uh, signed by a thousand Puritan ministers wanting reform. Numerous things that they were listing, uh, they wanted the king to address. And they actually meet the king as he's traveling down from Scotland to England, and they present this petition. The king's got to deal with this because he's got the church on one hand being very cautious, and he's got the, the Puritans on the other hand really wanting reform. So what he does in the... Uh, early January of 1604, calls a conference at Hampton Court Palace, um, just outside London. And they have this meeting. And he listens to the things that the Puritans are saying. And James, very learned, very wise man, starts to think, well, actually, that really doesn't have much weight, kind of dismisses them one by one. And he's kind of getting to the point where he's not actually conceding anything to these Puritans. And it's by the majority of scholars seem to believe that the reason he makes this next statement is to give them something. okay? Because he doesn't want to upset them, they're part of his realm and so on, but on the same hand, he doesn't want to upset the church, because obviously the established church believe that the king is the head of that and so on, and therefore kind of his own position is kind of someone involved in here. And as a result of this conference, King James makes his statement. He says, I wish some special pains were taken for a uniform translation, which should be done by the best learned men in both universities, that would be Oxford and Cambridge, uh, then reviewed by the bishops, presented to the Privy Council, lastly ratified by the royal authority to be read in the whole church and none other. Now, he's dismissing the Geneva Bible because of the issues and problems he's aware of, that the established church doesn't like, but then he's saying, well, let's have a new translation. Now, for him, this is a good move because he knows it's going to take some time to translate from scratch. So he knows this is going to kind of put everything on hold for quite a few years as this work begins and gets underway. 47 men then are chosen to translate. The translators are organized into six different groups, um, splitting between uh, two in Westminster, two in Cambridge, and two in Oxford two groups. There's 17 people at Westminster and they're assigned to translate Genesis through to two kings and Romans through to Jude. 13 at Cambridge work on First Chronicles through to Ecclesiastes and the 15 at Oxford were employed to translate Isaiah through to Malachi and the Gospels and Acts and Revelation. So they all have their particular fields. Now these were the, the best scholars of the day, learned scholars, fluent in these languages and so on. The work's finally completed in 1611, and that is the day the first printed version of the King James Bible comes off the press. And finally, England's got its own translation of the Bible. It was a landmark, of course, not just because we have that, but in the history of the English language. Many people have commented and said that you know, it's the greatest English text ever produced. 
whether you're looking at it from a Christian or religious perspective or not, it truly has inspired and shaped cultures, no question. And its influence has actually been immeasurable. I mean, one of the incredible things is that a lot of this country used to speak French up until the time the King James Bible was produced, and then we have this shift to English. And numerous other things that the uh, King James Bible influenced and affected. The translators of the King James made this comment. They said, truly, this is in the preface, truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make uh, of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against um, that has been our endeavour. In other words, something that people couldn't speak about without any real cause, because there would be no reason they could argue against it. And their intention was to compile the work that had been done by these people that we've been talking about already, that have been translating up to this point. The last hundred years leading up to this has just been full of different people translating the Bible into their various languages. And the, the King James translators wanted to use this wisdom, not just reject it and do something fresh, but use this wisdom, going back to the original manuscripts and so on, and come up with something that was par excellence. The translators themselves acknowledge that they had a multitude of sources from which to draw from. And they say, Neither did we think much to consult the translators or commentators, Chaldee, Hebrew, Syrian, Greek, or Latin, no, nor the Spanish, French, Italian, or Dutch. We, we looked at all of these possible sources. They also used the Greek editions of Erasmus that he'd compiled. Uh, Stephanus and Beza were also accessible. So they had everything at their fingertips from which to translate from. Four years were spent on the preliminary translation by the six groups. They didn't rush this. And they actually make the comment, um, in fact, I'll read that in a second. Uh, the translators were uh, exacting and particular in their work, as related in their preface. They say this, Neither did we disdain to revise that which we'd done, and to bring back to the anvil that which we'd hammered. But having and using as great helps as were uh, needful, and fearing no reproach for slowness, nor coveting praise for expedition. We have, at the length, through the good hand of the Lord upon us, brought the work uh, to, to that pass that you see. So they're saying, you know, we weren't rushing this through. We weren't going to get told off if we were slow, and nor were we going to get praised if we were quick. We took as much time as it took, and if it needed to be revised, we went back and we went over it again. And that's exactly what they did. And one very remarkable thing that we need to understand here at this point is given the propensity to produce the new translations for the hundred years or so leading up to this, so from 1516 to 1611, we see numerous translations, and I've given you the, the key ones as they came out, but there were many others. What is amazing is that it stops. At this point, it stops. There's no, no new, uh, notable translations that are done for the next 400 years or so. And that is amazing. And it's not as if suddenly all the scholars disappear. The same scholars that have been around, that have been you know, furiously translating, were all still there. But suddenly we get this version of the Bible and it eclipses everything that's gone before it. And nobody seems to set about trying now to translate anything else. Why would they need to? We've just had the best of the best using the best of the best to produce what they believed at the time was the very best translation they could have produced. Dr. Lawrence Vance says, The authorised version eclipsed all previous versions of the Bible. The Geneva Bible was last printed in 1644, but the notes continued to be published with the King James text. 
Subsequent versions of the Bible were likewise eclipsed, for the authorised version was the Bible until the advent of the revised version and ensuing modern translations, which have been within the last hundred years or so. Now, again, the Geneva Bible had swept Europe. All of a sudden, it's kind of put to one side. Now, again, just to to kind of look at our, our timeline, what we see is that Erasmus as we said, in 1516, was compiling all these copies, uh, exposes the errors in the Vulgate, and starts drawing together around about 5,000 or so manuscripts that became known as the Textus Receptus, or Received Text. And they're found to agree in almost every area, apart from the odd differences within spelling. And that, again, would be in regard to the New Testament that we're talking specifically now, we've already talked about Old Testament translation and how the Jews did it. We've obviously got the original manuscripts. And then we have those numerous faithful copies. And of course, as an old manuscript gets old and wears out, then it can be thrown away. Because the new one is just as good as the old one because of this process the Jews have followed. And largely through the work of Erasmus and so on, uh, we get down to... Um, sorry, not Erasmus, this is... Um, through the work of uh, the, the Jewish community at the time, we end up with this chap, Ben Chaim, uh, who produces this uh, copy, if you like, that's referred to as the Ben Chaim manuscript, the Masoretic uh, manuscript, uh, that becomes the basis for the Jewish world, and because of that, the basis for the Bible. It's from that text that the King James Version, the Old Testament, is translated. And there was no debate or question over its authenticity. We also find that, moving on a little bit in time, it becomes the text for the first um, Biblia Hebraica. Now you'll find, if you look in any of your Bibles, it will tell you where the manuscript source was from which it was translated. And the first two editions of that were both based on the Ben Chaim text. Let me read you this comment. The Ben Chaim Masoretic text was the uncontested text of the Old Testament for over 400 years. The Ben Chaim text was used in the first two editions of Biblia, Biblia Hebraica by Rudolf Kittel, usually referred to as BHK, published in 1906 and 1912. So that becomes like the, the source document from which all other uh, versions will now be copied, as it were. However, we also find that there's another manuscript, uh, arguably a stray manuscript, referred to as sometimes as just L, uh, as the Leningrad manuscript, around about 1000 AD it dates back to, um, that was known as the Ben Asher text, uh, again referred to as a Masoretic text. The, the, the Masorite is just Hebrew uh, word meaning traditional, and the, the Masorites, in a sense, replaced the Levites as the ones who took it upon themselves to uh, translate and guard the text of the Old Testament. Now, that text, we find, is the one that becomes used for all subsequent versions of the Bibles that we have today, the Biblica Hebraica, um, from 1937 onwards. Let me just read to you a comment <coughs> regarding that one. In 1937, Kittle changed his Hebrew text from the Ben Chaim to the Ben Asher text. The Ben Asher text was based on a text called the Leningrad Manuscript, which was dated around 1008 AD. Using the peculiar logic of that day, which believed that the older must always be better, his 1937 edition had about 20,000 changes from the Ben Chaim text. It had apparently not dawned on Kill that the Ben Asher version was based on very few minor manuscripts, while the Ben Chaim text followed the vast majority of the manuscripts available. 
Why would Kittle throw away or throw out the evidence provided by the vast majority of manuscripts to follow only a small minority of texts? Doesn't make any sense. And yet he did it. If you weren't being sceptical, you'd have to say maybe there was an agenda. It did actually happen to occur toward the end of his life. And uh, by doing what he did, it gave him a nice little retirement nest egg. <coughs> that led on to something called the Hebraic uh, Stuttgartensia. Uh, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, let me read uh, a comment regarding that. In 1966, there was a further revision of Kittel's Biblia, Biblia Hebraica called the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, which was also based upon the older Ben Asher text. So this is the potentially corrupt text. This new edition of Kittel is referred to as BHS. It says the revision was the work of unbelieving German rationalists and represents theologically liberal modernism in its worst form. So we've got people involved here in a copy of the Old Testament who arguably many of them were not even believers, but it comes out of this uh, school of higher criticism that was existing in Germany uh, around about this time. And so on. Right. So then, our only choice is between the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text that has been the standard text for the Old Testament for well over 2,000 years and is represented by the vast majority of the existing Old Testament manuscripts or the new modern text that has only a little minor manuscript support and leaves out or changes between 20,000 and 30,000 words in the Old Testament. The choice is obvious. Only the traditional Ben Chaim text can lay claim to the uninterrupted use for all the generations from the time of David until now. Remember, God promised to preserve his word. You know, if the other text, the Ben Asher text, is the correct text, we've got to ask ourselves, why did God allow it to be hidden for so long? And why did he allow everybody to use what may be then a corrupt version? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And because we have the vast manuscript evidence, clearly the Ben Chaim text is the one that has been faithfully passed down and transmitted to us. Again, that verse from uh, Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New? Well, mentioned Erasmus in 1516. He collated these texts, um, which have become known as the Received Text, or Textus Receptus. Around about 5,000 or so different manuscripts were collated, um, Greek manuscripts. Now, we also have two gentlemen I need to introduce you to. You may have heard their names already, but we have uh, Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. Um, these two characters lived, as you can see from the dates there, um, in the 19th century, and uh, they had a massive impact on the translation of Scripture as we have it today. Um, Westcott was an Anglican minister. Hort was a university professor at Cambridge, um, interestingly, they rejected Genesis as being a historical account. They supported the view of Darwinian evolution. Uh, they questioned the existence of a literal devil, and they rejected a literal hell. And yet they supported the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. They rejected the basis of the atonement, and yet believed in baptismal regeneration. They questioned the historical figure of David. They, they believed that David was just kind of symbol, not actually a real person. They thought that the second coming is just spiritual. And Westcott and Hort were leaders of a society focused on the paranormal. 
And this later became known as the Cambridge Ghost Society. Let me read you a comment. The progenitor of the Society for um, uh, Psychical Research and the Fabian Society was the Cambridge University Ghost Society, founded in 1851. In 1853, two years after, found, uh, after founding said Ghost Society, um, Hort and Westcott agreed upon the suggestion of publisher Daniel Macmillan to take part in an interesting and comprehensive New Testament scheme, that is, to undertake a joint revision of the Greek New Testament. So this is what they set out to do. They're given this suggestion that they should try and produce their own version. The project was withheld from public knowledge during the 20 years required by Westcott Hall to complete the new Greek, te- new Greek text. And during the subsequent 10 years during which an English revision committee uh, revised the 1611 authorised version. So. However, during this period... For nearly 30 years, Doctors Westcott and Hawke maintained their involvement in the spiritualist pursuits of their various sects, uh, sorry, various secret societies and political cables. The Hermes Club, the Ghost Society, the Company of Apostles, uh, and Uranus. These are all clubs and groups they belong to, ones that we wouldn't want people in our church to belong to. Westcott and Hawke were responsible for the greatest feat in textual criticism. They were responsible for replacing the universal text of the authorised version with their local text of Egypt and the Roman Catholic Church. What we're saying is that these two characters, through their labours, effectively somehow got the Christian world to turn from using the manuscripts that have been continually used to adopt these ones that they come up with. They'd been deceived into believing that the Roman Catholic manuscripts, Vaticanus and Aleph, which is also referred to as Sinaiticus, were better because they were older. Now, of course, you think better because it's older? No, not necessarily, because if something's being used continually, it will wear out. As long as we're having faithful copies, we would expect the old ones to wear out. If you've got an old one, it could actually be an indication that it wasn't used, nobody wanted it, and therefore it's not as good. So that's very subjective reasoning. They produced a New Testament manuscript that is used almost exclusively for modern versions of the Bible. Since the 1880s, most contemporary translations of the New Testament have relied upon a relatively few manuscripts discovered chiefly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Such translations depended primarily on two manuscripts, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, because of their greater age. The theory is, because they're older, they must be better. Again, very shallow reasoning. The Greek text obtained by using these sources, the related papyri, our most ancient manuscript, is known as the Alexandrian text. So we've now got two texts. We've got the received text, and we've got this group that came from Alexandria, which we've already mentioned was a problematic place to start with from a a biblical uh, authority point of view. Now, currently the Vaticanus, this manuscript copy that we have, is uh, living in the Vatican Library. It's been there since the 15th century. And the Sinaiticus is uh, residing, or part of it, resides in the British Library up in London. Now, those are the two manuscripts from which almost all versions of the Bible, new versions of the Bible, are translated from. Let me tell you a few things about them. A chap called uh, uh, Mr. Bergen, he became Dean of Chichester Cathedral, not far from here. He fought Westcott and Holt and their, their corruption as he saw it. <clears throat> Regarding these two documents, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, he says, It is, in fact, easier to find two consecutive verses 
in which these two manuscripts differ, the one from the other, than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. In other words, he's saying there's a lot of problems with these two manuscripts, even just comparing one to another. According to Hermann C. Hoskia, there are 3,036 textual variations between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in the text of the Gospels alone. So just Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we've got over 3,000 differences between these two. Some estimate over 9,000 discrepancies between these two principal Alexandrian manuscripts. Bergon made a comment, he said, uh, The impurity of the text exhibited by these codices is not a question of opinion, but fact. In the Gospels alone, um, Codex B, Vaticanum 1, leaves out words or whole clauses no less than 1,491 times. It bears traces of careless transcriptions on every page. Speaking just of the Sinaiticus one, uh, Tischendorf, well this is the guy that discovered it, described it. I perceived a large and wide basket full of old parchments. This is the waste basket, uh, basket on the uh, monastery uh, on Mount Sinai, not the real Mount Sinai, the one in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, where there's a monastery. He said, I perceived a large and wide basket full of old parchments, and the librarian told me that two heaps like this had already been committed to the flames. What was my surprise to find amid this heap uh, sorry, uh, yes, what was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers? So he finds this version of this New Testament text in a waste bin, in a monastery, about to be thrown away. David Brown makes this comment. He says, uh, Tischendorf, the discoverer of the Sinaiticus manuscript, noted at least 14,800 changes which had been made on this manuscript by others than the original copyist. Now that says to me that this particular document wasn't held in particularly high regard. If you've got people scribbling all over it and making changes here, there and everywhere, then it wasn't something that was particularly looked after. In regard to Vaticanus, it should be noted that there is no prominent biblical manuscripts in which uh, there occurs such gross cases of misspelling, faulty grammar and omission, as in Codex B, the Vaticanus. The entire manuscript has been mutilated. Every letter has been run over with a pen, making exact identification of many of the characters impossible. I question the great witness value of any manuscript that has been overwritten, doctored, changed and added to for more than ten centuries. Well, I'd agree with that. Similar to the Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus identifies itself as a product of Gnostic corruption. In John 1.18 where the only begotten Son is changed to the only begotten God, thus perpetuating the ancient Arian heresy that disassociates the Son of God, Jesus Christ, from God himself by claiming that the Word was not the same as the Son. John's Gospel identifies the Son directly with the Word, John 1, 1 and 18, um, but by changing the Son to God in verse 18, this direct association is broken. That's one example. There are many, many more. Now, just some points for you to ponder. And then we'll wrap up. There's 128 papyruses or fragments of that have been found. These are ancient animal skin, or sorry, uh, papyrus from the, the, the reeds um, that have been made. Manuscripts that have been found have been discovered. 13 of them, 15%, go along with Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. 75 of them, that's 85%, go along with the received text. Okay? On that alone, it's kind of a fairly easy decision which text we want to be sticking with. 
Cursive manuscripts, or sometimes referred to as minuscules, are written uh, in longhand or cursive, joined up writing, uh, effectively. Currently, we have got around about 2,907 of these codices that exist today, that have survived down through the ages. 23 of them, which is less than 1%, go against the Texas Receptus. The overwhelming weight of manuscript authority shows that these Alexander manuscripts, as we could conclude anyway, are not worth the paper they're written on. Uncialed manuscripts are the Greek manuscripts written in capital letters which run together. Now, these don't actually have any punctuation, which makes them a little bit harder to translate and so on. But currently, we've got about 267 of these, and 258 of the 267 are the same as the Texas Receptus. That's 97%. There's not a single group of manuscripts you could go to and find that the Alexander manuscripts appear to be more reliable, and yet that has become the basis of all modern versions. Lectionaries are also portions of scripture that were repeatedly read in church on certain days. Now, really, from the early church on, they were reading scripture in church. Some of these things were written down. All of them that have been discovered go along with the Texas Receptus. Now, does it really matter? Is this important? Well, I've got some of my Bibles here. If you want to come have a look at them, I've brought a whole chunk with me. Um, different versions, different translations. I just want to read you something that comes from the... This is the Revised Standard Version. They make this statement. They say, Yet the King James Version has grave defects. By the middle of the 19th century, the development of biblical studies and the discovery of many manuscripts more ancient than those upon which the King James Version was based made it manifest that these defects are so many and so serious as to call for revision of the English translation. Somebody's wrong, somebody's right. They can't both be right. If the statements made in this Bible is correct, then the Bible that had been passed down through the ages, the text that had come down, is corrupt. If that statement's wrong, well, then somebody's got an agenda. And I would suggest it goes back to what I mentioned back at the beginning of Genesis. Does it matter? Let me ask you this question. Who was Joseph, Mary and Joseph? Who was, sorry, try again. Was Joseph Jesus' father? Hands up if you think Joseph was Jesus' father. Who was Jesus' father? God. You'll find the modern translations, the NIV for one, will tell you that Joseph was Jesus' father. Does it matter? Yeah, I think so. I think it makes a big difference. Was Mary a virgin? If you look in the RSV, no. Are true Christians assured of salvation? Or are we in the process of being saved? Now, I know that we are um, in the process of being delivered from this present world and so on, and etc. But in terms of our actual salvation, can we say we are saved, or do we have to say, like the Catholic Church says, that we are being saved? Well, we know that we can save. Categorically, we are saved. Do you know, the New King James, in three places, tells us that we're being saved. If you check the Greek text, it doesn't exist. That word being has been inserted from the Alexandrian manuscripts. Does God have a definite plan for Israel, or is the outcome uncertain? Well, we know God has a very clear, definite plan. But you read these versions, and on numerous scriptures, you'll find that text subtly changes things. 
1973, the NIV was produced, which was offered as a dynamic equivalent translation into modern English. The NIV was designed not for word-for-word accuracy, but rather for -for phrase-for-phrase accuracy. Well, now that's very interesting, but Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, not one yod or tittle, the smallest letters in the Hebrew language, they will not pass from the Lord till all be fulfilled. So when I read a Bible, I don't want to read what somebody thought Jesus said. I want to read what Jesus said. If I don't understand it, fine. I'll try and bring my understanding up to the level of Scripture. I don't want to accept somebody else's view of what they think Jesus was trying to tell me. The ASV differs from the King James in over 36,000 places. Okay, some of those might be very small and insignificant. I guarantee you some of them are not. The Greek text underlying the translation of the ASV comes from Westcott and Hawke. Now, these characters didn't even believe, really, the basis of Scripture that we did. They don't hold it in the regard that we would hold it in, and yet they produce their version of it from which the modern versions come. And the text that they use differs from the, the text of receptors in over 5,700 instances. The Good News Version Let's read this to you. The blood of Christ, a most important and precious word and theme, was lacking in many key New Testament references. It was replaced by death or costly sacrifice. Both good words in their own place, but not what the Holy Spirit gave in the original text. The blood of Christ is an extremely important thing for us to understand. But the Message Bible. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy, fill you up with peace so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. The God of green hope? You know, same thing again. I didn't even bother bringing a copy of my message Bible. I think it's propping up a shelf at work, at home rather. You know, Eugene Peterson makes this comment. He says, why do people spend so much time studying the Bible? How much time, sorry, how much do you need to know? We invest all this time in understanding the text, which has a separate life of its own, and we think we're being more pious and spiritual when we're doing it. We should be studying it less, not more. You need just enough to pay attention to God. I'm just not at all pleased with the emphasis on Bible study, as if it's some kind of special thing that Christians do, and the more the better. Well, I'm terribly sorry, but it is some kind of special thing that Christians do, and the more the better. Now, Eugene Peterson, since he made that comment, has actually been a little bit more careful about some of the things he says, but nevertheless, he was um, um, involved in the translation of a, another recent version, translation, uh, the Rivare uh, Study Bible, which basically lists the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11, as effectively um, just mythology, ancient stories, etc., passed down, not actual factual accounts. Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon is the view. Uh, that phrase actually was told to me by Steve Chalk. I had a conversation with him once and uh, about the authority of Scripture. And he says that the uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis were Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. So uh, there you go, just for your information. Um, today, you know, we've got more versions than any time in history. Yet the church is more bibli- biblically illiterate than ever. And we hear the cry, ah, oh, but it's easy to read. Just look at some of those words, you can see the references. What's easy to understand? Boat or skiff? Little rivers or rivulets? Bowels or entrails? Judge or vindicate? Pound or minus? Fat or verdant? The deep or the abyss? Thoughts or anxieties? Smell or savour? Uproar or insurrection? Judgment hall, praetorium? Deputy, pro-council? I think you'll agree the list that's on the left-hand side there is easier to understand. Well, those words are in the King James Version. The other side are in the New King James. 
Surprising, isn't it? There's thousands of instances where we find the word Lord has been changed to something other than Lord. If you find, I mean, again, just take the message for example, the phrase the Lord Jesus Christ appears a couple of hundred times in the New Testament, uh, I think, and in the uh, Message Bible it doesn't appear once. There's things being changed here. Modern translations also change plural to singular and vice versa. Both Jesus and Paul build doctrinal points based upon the grammar. The Lord said unto my Lord and so on. Um, And then Paul talks about uh, the seed or seeds, an issue regarding singular or plural. And if those change, the whole argument breaks down. Today's NIV, for example, there's 2,000 changes from single to plural. And there's 1,600 gender changes. Uh, We're trying to produce Bibles that are more inclusive, more acceptable to people. But what we're doing is seeing the Word of God gradually corrupted. Psalm 119 again says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The words of the Lord are pure words, of silver, tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. We need to be aware that there's something going on here that we need to be very in tune with, particularly when we talk about reading and studying the Bible. See, either God left mankind without his word until Westcott and Horst rediscovered it in the 1870s, or we're witnessing an attack on God's preserved words as foretold in Scripture. You know, remember Satan's agenda, has God said? It's that continual twisting of God's word. Psalm 138 verse 2 to close says, I will worship towards thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God holds his word in very high regard indeed. He says that he exalts his word above his name. This morning we were singing about the name of Jesus. But God says that he exalts his word above his name. Now, when you start changing the text, whilst arguably some people will tell you that it's easy to read, you lose so much. We hear here that God magnifies his word. The modern versions do not magnify the word of God. What they do is they reduce the information that's there. I'll give you just one example, and there are many. Matthew 18.22, Peter goes up to Jesus and says, How often should I forgive my brother? Jesus says to him, according to the King James, 70 times 7. If you read the New Century Version, which back in DCF some years ago, we bought a whole load of these for our youth because there's some really real good maps and all sorts of things in there. 77 times. It's different, I think you'll agree. And most of the other versions as well give you completely random answers to that question. The idea they they seem to try and convey is what Jesus was saying to to, to Peter, you should forgive your brother an awful lot. That's the idea, that's what you're trying to convey. And the problem is people put their understanding on God's words and pass it on to us as something we should believe. Jesus says, when Peter asks that question, Jesus says, until 70 times 7. Until 490. Now you and I may read that and it doesn't mean anything to us, but that doesn't give us the right to alter the text to make it something that we can be comfortable with. When you dig into that, you'll find that Jesus was saying, until 490. Until the kingdom comes. Because you'll find that the Jewish history and our history has been divided into these 490 year blocks. Chuck Misler does a very interesting study going through that. And when you understand it, wow, what a difference it makes. 
So I'm not telling you to get rid of your versions that you read. I wanted to bring this to your attention and leave it to you to make your own decision. I read the King James and I study the King James. And I think you can see from this morning the reasons why I do that. I would encourage you, if you're going to study, to check against the King James. But you use the version you're going to live by. People have been saved by all sorts of versions over the years. My first Bible was a living Bible. It's not actually a Bible. It's a commentary. It, you know, It's just somebody's opinion of what Jesus was saying or what the Bible was saying. But I learned from that. I've read through the NIV and I've gleaned things from that. I read the, King, the New King James for over 10 years. And this is one of the versions. This is about the third one I got through. This was really useful because I, when I was at the Anglican Church, I could actually take out the bits they didn't agree with. And I could just take... It just didn't, didn't have to carry as much. But this is just literally falling apart. This is just a new King James. And I learned so much that God showed me through spirit. So I'm not saying bin them, burn them. I'm not saying anything like that. And I don't fall into that you know, King James only camp as some people talk about. But I do believe it's the best translation that we've got. And I want to know what God is saying. I don't want to know what somebody else is saying. And particularly some Gnostic heretic back in Alexandra. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this opportunity to to look at these things this morning. Father, we pray that you, through your spirit, would speak to us. That, Lord, you would show us what you want from us. Father, we do love your word. Lord, we meet together and we study your word regularly because we love your word. It's your word that tells us about you, about who you are, about what you've done, about this incredible salvation that you have wrought for us. And, Lord, we want to know the truth. So, Father, we pray you give us wisdom. Give us discernment, and you help us as we grow in you. Lord, just watch over us. Keep us close to you, we pray, through these coming days and weeks. And Father, help us to magnify your word and magnify your name. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.